Jesus. Someone's gonna break him! Oh god, what did I just pour into my gullet? I have her! I like them on my face. That tongue was huge! I want the guy to be home. Eleven weeks ago, Adam and Dane sold their souls and the rest of their shoes in Delhi. Sue and Teresa stepped out in Jaipur. Kim and Donna crashed in Dubai. Ross and Taryn were left in the spin in Istanbul. Sticky and Sam were puzzled in Cuba. James and Sarah ran out of cash in Vancouver. Lucy and Amelia ice-picked Paulie in Banff. And Joseph and Grace were stranded in who knows where in China, let's be honest. Welcome to the final episode of The Long Awaited Amazing Race Australia 2 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name's Michael Halfstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian who I've heard struggles to tell the difference between Sheilas and blokes, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And the lady who realises that we don't understand a word that she says, so she just tries to be entertaining, Michelle Pierstenner. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. It's the final episode of this very long-awaited season. I know we like to talk on the finales about how long it's taken us to record these, but we started talking about this well over a year ago. And uh, we finally actually bothered recording it, which is nice. Yay! Not that people will hear this for, let's be honest, about seven months at this point. I like that I wrote that post and um, Sarah replied last night. Oh, did she? I must yes. have missed this. Yeah. I didn't realise she was still in your group. Yeah, she is. She is, yeah. Very interesting. She's not still still in uh, URC number. Obviously, she had a, uh, a falling out with us for some reason. <laughs> I suspect without, obviously... We're recording this in December. It's literally New Year's Eve for Michelle. I suspect that this won't be the last Amazing Race Australia 2 episode that we do in 2023. I have a feeling that there may be one or two or 11 interviews coming. <laughs> well, 10, because you've already done Shane Andrew. But yeah, my my feeling on this is, let's be honest, there'll probably be at least one more interview, if not two or three, if we can, uh, if we can swing it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there will be at least one, given somebody's already volunteered. Mm. Hashtag Paul Montgomery podcast. Oh, that's the dream, isn't it? Logan needs to add him on LinkedIn after I thought about it last week. <laughs> Logan's our talent booker. He needs to be the one to bother doing LinkedIn just to slide into uh, to Paul's whatever they use as DMs on LinkedIn and, and get him on the podcast for us. Hmm. No, I can't even imagine what the response would be. <laughs> I, I think it would actually be comparable with the Flow and Zap one in terms of what? How the hell did you get him? <laughs> well, I don't know about the response from the public. I mean, the response from Paul when he gets asked to do an interview about Amazing Race Australia. Well, yeah, that as well. But all you've got to do is tell him that we very much uh, championed them through the season, which isn't a lie. Yeah, verify it with Lucy and Amelia. Verify we're nice people. We're not going to be too mean about you, let's be honest. We might have said you're a bit arrogant earlier in the season, but once Grace came along and was a complete pain in the ass, we're very much Team Paul. Maybe not Michelle, but me and Logan are. No, I'm not Team Paul, correct, I'm not Team Paul, but I'm not totally against him because, oh my God, the way he behaved in episode 12, I'm like, yeah, you're not bad. Compared to the, I forgot how bad, well, specifically Joe, just completely unprovoked all of her tirades were against Paul during the finale. 
Yeah, I think, obviously this is something for the end of the episode, really, but I think, especially on the rewatch, I didn't like Paul at the time when I watched this season. I have a lot of sympathy for Paul in this finale, because he is a very gracious loser, and he's very nice to Shane and Andrew when they check in, and he's very nice and quite calm to Michelle and Joe when, especially Joe, but Michelle as well, they're both just ranting at him in the end. They spend the entire episode basically saying, Paul is an absolute arsehole, I can't be beaten by him. Yeah, it just seems like they're just, uh, when Joe says, oh, Paul's a sore loser and going on about the rant, I'm thinking, Joe, you are acting as the epitome of a sore loser as you call somebody else a sore loser. Yeah, 100%. And I think the other thing with Paul, too, is that being standoffish with the other teams or not the friendliest with the other teams that doesn't violate his own personal ethic code. He wasn't necessarily being mean-spirited or trying to intentionally put people down. It's more about building himself up and trying to have that confidence in himself and then treat everyone else, I don't know, more like it's a professional environment rather than an environment to socialize and make friends. Like you're, It's not going to be like, say, the Amazing Race Canada 8 cast where you see them on vacations to... Palm Springs and random golf courses around North America just hanging out together as buddies. I don't think Paul ever had that in his mind. And, and I think further evidence of that fact is is uh, having a co-worker as his partner on the race, as opposed to everyone else where like, Shane and Andrew were also co-workers, but more so seem to be friends outside of work. And, and then you have a lot of sibling teams and couples in the season or a parent-child team. So Paul's the only one that ha- that just viewed it as having a completely professional partner and probably extended that to viewing the rest of the cast as just being people in a workplace environment striving for just a really large bonus check. <laughs> yeah, I think we could do an entire podcast on the psychology of Paul Montgomery. But I think it all stems back to him being overweight as a child and being bullied as a child and those horrible feelings for him coming back mid-season of people being against him. And I think he just has a huge wall up in this season and he's like, yeah, I can't let anyone in. The great Paul of China. It's the great emotional Paul of China. Yeah, I think it says it all that at the end of the season, Steve's just like, yeah, I didn't really know Paul that well, but actually we work quite well as a team. And it's like Paul obviously really wanted to do Amazing Race and really wanted to challenge himself. And he was just like, yeah, I'm broadly friendly with Steve. Steve, do you want to do it with me? And they thought Paul's a really interesting character. Steve, very well-traveled. This could actually be quite interesting. The contrast in personality between the two, right? Yeah, I mean, you see it at the start of the uh, at the start of the leg with, oh, I'm Michelle and Joe. I hate Paul. I really just want to beat him. And then you just have like Steve going, yeah, they give us a fish if we ask the wrong person, but I enjoy it. Yeah, or Joe saying, oh, Paul, he can't. This was my favorite transition during the. It was right near the start of the episode when they go into the fishing task where Joe says, oh, Paul is so serious, he can't crack a smile. And then we instantly cut to Paul joking around for about a minute straight with Steve. Yeah. <laughs> now Grace is gone. They basically just undermine the twins instead of Grace. Yeah, it was just that was the weird thing about the finale too, because through the first ten episodes of the season, you're rooting for Michelle and Joe. They're coming off really well. 
And then in the Panel Ultimate episode, you have them screwing over Shay and Andrew and then taking a lot more digs at Paul. And then in the finale, nearly every confessional is about Paul. And then Paul and Steve, the only time they really acknowledge other teams in their confessionals this leg, is saying, oh yeah, Michelle and Joe are great at getting between points A and B. We view them as our strongest competition along with Shane and Andrew all season long. Uh, They're really bright. He just kept complimenting them in confessionals all the way through. And then just out of nowhere, you get an additional tirade face-to-face from (laughs) Joe while she's waiting in the prison cell. And then even when they're digging for treasure, she's still making fun of Paul to his face while he's actively encouraging her. And he's saying in confessionals, I want them to you know, finish strong after how much of a fight they put up all season. And also doesn't help Michelle and Joe, too, that Joe didn't know what the word envy means. I just haven't seen a team really have their edit collapse that much in the final two episodes of the season. I wonder whether, and Michelle will probably correct me if I'm wrong here, but there was a significant backlash to Paul when this season aired. And I wonder whether during the Olympic break they went back and made Paul a little bit more sympathetic. Mm. Obviously they couldn't have really edited the finale without putting in Joe's tirade and uh, her saying he's classless or whatever she said at the end. But I wonder whether they went back and thought, well, Lucy and Amelia go out. They are the heroes. Shane and Andrew obviously get screwed over and win, so we need to make them sympathetic. They get screwed over by Michelle and Joe. Maybe there's a bit of room for us to make Michelle and Joe a bit more villainous in in the last episode and a half. Rather than make the audience super bummed out that an all-female team barely loses the Amazing Race yet again. I do wonder because there's a massive heel turn between the start and the end of the Olympic break for Michelle and Joe. Hmm. Could be. Because at this point, we'd only had, in terms of English language seasons, we've only had Sabrina and Joe Jur, Nat and Kat, and Keisha and Jen as the only all-female teams to win, right? In English language versions, yeah. Yeah, so like three teams out of, what would it be at that point, 26 seasons? So... They have to have a bit more justification, probably, for why an all-female team barely loses again and not be super pissed off about it. Because in the American version, whenever an all-female team has missed out on the winner's circle the past couple years, there's a bit more uh, there's a bit more uproar just because we're almost at the same length of drought in the American version as they were leading up to the 17th season. Paul was super controversial when this season aired. And I wonder whether he had a quiet word with producers or something saying, I'm getting a lot of hate mail here. Is there any chance you can, you know, make it a bit more sympathetic? But would they do that? Would they? I mean, this is the this is the outset of proper Facebook groups covering the show weekly. And I remember Paul was very much vilified. Mm. Even if Paul didn't say anything to them, which he was probably too proud to say anything to them, being perfectly honest, I wouldn't be surprised if they thought it themselves and went, we're going to have to do something about this. That makes me think of the Amazing Race Reddit page where it started in season 19. And there are only about two or three people on that Reddit page because during season 19, somebody tried to do like an episode thread. And then I think it was for episode three or four, somewhere in there. And the only response to it was somebody saying, I like to get high while watching the Amazing Race. 
And then I don't think there's established episode threads on the Masonry subreddit until there's a few for season 21, but it barely has any comments. And I think season 22 is the first time where they've kept all the threads. I just think it's a very interesting heel turn for Michelle and Joe between the Olympic break, because it's noticeable. I mean, they were maybe a little bit villainous in the Panther episode, laughing at Paul and Steve, but nowhere near as horrid as they were to him in in uh, Beijing and then in this finale. It's like they were blaming him for why they lost. <laughs> I mean, he is part of the reason that they lost, because they were so blinkered by him. He was a, yeah, he, he really was distracting them. I don't think Michelle and Joe... Did Michelle and Joe say anything about Shane and Andrew the whole finale, other than, oh, they're already here at the jail? That and they gave them some compliments in the How Well Do You Know Your Partner Challenge because they'd worked with them. Right. So yeah, that's that's a bit... Ex- I mean, no wonder you lose when the people who won, you barely acknowledge the whole time. Yeah. Anyway, I'm very surprised Michelle's not tapped to watch and gone, we've not even started the episode yet. No, I, I have thought it. I have thought it. <laughs> so, previously, the final four teams raced to Beijing for a spot in the final leg. Some teams freaked out of the prospect of eating local delicacies, while some created new delicacies of their own while trying to get their points across in Mandarin. Michelle and Joe won the leg with a very quick taxi driver, but it was Joseph and Grace who were sent to Inner Mongolia and eliminated from the race. And during the rest period, teams were flown to Guilin, or Gulin if you are Michelle. Yeah, she took over Grace's role for mispronouncing names of cities. That's what I have in my notes. She does it a few times in this episode, because she doesn't know how to pronounce Bugger Road Jail either. Mm, which is unusual, because it's, it's a well-known place here. And it's Michelle and Joe leaving at 5.07am, Paul and Steve at 5.12, and Shane and Andrew at 8.47. This equalizer that we're about to see, because what was the hours of operation was for 8.30 in the morning? Yep. That, well, that's a pretty helpful equalizer for Shane and Andrew. But there's still an hour and a half late to it. That's what I mean. That equalizer <laughs> really, really helps them, especially when you think about what time that flight left at. That would, that would have been a hell of a leg if this was a final two, considering Michelle and Joanne, Paul and Steve finish this finale about one minute apart but i mean just think about the winners actually arriving to the first challenge an hour and a half after the other two teams why would you even think that they had a possibility of winning obviously they've got to fly to australia they've got to fly to the home country and that can equalize them but i was like oh god wouldn't you feel totally demoralized that you had no chance and then actually on top of that paul and steve eventually barely make that same flight too by six minutes. So in a way they were also really, uh, well, they would have been, they were this close to being crippled by the equalizer because they would have been able to get all of this done about three hours earlier if it wasn't for that equalizer and then definitely be able to make that, that flight. Mm. So that's another way that Shane and Andrew get completely rescued here in the finale. Yeah, totally. So teams must now take a taxi to the Lijiang River and find their next clue amongst the traditional fishermen by asking for their next clue in Mandarin. And they have a whopping 250 didgeridoos for this leg of the race, which is $210 more than last leg. <laughs> Joseph and Grace must be so pissed. I presume that they um, they realised how far the distances were in the China bit of this leg and thought, well, Joseph and Grace got absolutely screwed by taxi drivers. We're going to have to just throw money at them now. 
Steve says it's been a great experience to do everything on the race. Paul can't wait to brag to the other teams that they got beaten by an accountant and a goofball. And they have always thought that Michelle and Joe were their greatest threats, apart from when they said Shane and Andrew were in Canada. It's just, uh, I, I can't think of anything more embarrassing than losing to an accountant. That's in my top five biggest fears on the Amazing Race. <laughs> no, as the son of two accountants, I agree. There is nothing more mortifying than losing to an accountant at anything. Goof, goofball I can handle. I can lose to a goofball any day of the week, but an accountant? Yeah, I may as well just commit seppuku on, on myself. You know who I would hate to lose? I would hate to lose... And have a, a two-male team win. Oh, my God. Of course you would. It would be the worst. Even if there was Shane and Andrew? Even if there was Shane and Andrew. <laughs> Just, I'm like, I'd be like, enough already. Enough. <laughs> and Joe says it's becoming more personal now. Paul is, is even more serious now they're in the finale. Crack a smile, man. And then he's joking. <laughs> Maybe Michelle and Joe just aren't very funny people to get a smile out of Paul. Well, yeah, I remember sort of when the Grace thing happened on the Facebook groups when everyone was sort of lurking on there, all the races. Sarah said something about Michelle and Joe being typical Sydney siders, I think it was. Well, they even said they even said though said that themselves though during during this finale, right? Yeah. I'd like to know what uh, what Sarah deems as a typical Sydney cider. I can't remember because I can't find any evidence of it, but I specifically remember the phrase typical Sydney ciders because I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking the same thing you did. Like, what does she mean by that? Maybe they just like to drink lots of cider. Yeah, I think she, uh, I think she sort of meant it as a, a little bit stuck up or something. So if they don't get a clue, they get a fish instead, which Steve is just as pleased about. <laughs> and Michelle and Joe get lucky on their first fisherman and leave in first. And it is a detour, which is teach or learn. In teach, teams must choose a student and tutor them on 10 Aussie words to get their next clue. And in learn, teams must learn the same 10 phrases in Mandarin from the same student and recite them to the teacher to get their next clue. I should quickly note that these locations are being pulled from Amazing Race 18, Unfinished Business. I don't think that's been said yet. And as two people who have done teaching, (laughs) what would you guys have done? With this detail. Definitely not what Shane and Andrew did. I was like, what the hell? What the hell are you doing to yourselves? In Shane and Andrew's defence. No, there is no defence of them. There is no defence. They just did something totally stupid and that's all there is to it. There is no defence. You can't defend them. In Shane and Andrew's defence. No. I think they were just so relieved to get to the final leg after being three and a half hours behind and nearly missing the final leg, that they took their eyes off the ball a little bit and thought, what do we want to do that will just be fun? And they obviously are missing their families, which is something you can't relate to. (laughs) And they just kind of got distracted by the idea of just seeing a cute child, basically. A muscular five-year-old, I think, is what they said. And then they used him as a human swing, like... uh... Uh, like my friend Kim and I do with her son Noah, where that's his favorite thing to do is to where he just grabs on the two arms and it's like he's swinging through the air. I forgot that they do that. <laughs> it's like the kid is five; he's not two or three. But hey, it's probably fun. And they don't even know this kid either, and they they're just swinging him across. <laughs> so Shane and Andrew say they've been underestimated the whole way. They've been caught in the rat race a bit and owe it to their families to go for the big one. 
and Shane was looking for someone who spoke English and found a police officer who could help them. This is, of course, the second time this season that a police officer has helped Shane and Andrew. Yeah. Do they just know, do they know a fellow cop when they see one? Well, I think it goes back to what I've said earlier in the season, which is, if you are in a place where you don't speak the language, your best bet is to either go to a hotel, which didn't work out for some teams in this in this episode. Yeah, how rare is that to see a hotel where the peop- where the employees don't speak English? Or, alternatively, go for a police officer. Because police officers tend to, especially in relation to the Dubai leg, they tend to be quite helpful and can point you in the right direction, if you need them to. Maybe not if you're Lucy and Amelia, but everyone else. And that is... That's something that is vastly underused on The Amazing Race, is from at least what we see, people going into hotels and asking for directions or for maps, because they will always give you a tourist map, or going to police officers, because they will help you. Yeah, Shane and Andrew run, other than how badly they screw up with their initial decision on the detour, they run this like pretty well for a team that probably wasn't at their most confident going into the final leg. No. And also, even if they'd stuck with the teach detour and missed the the Guangzhou flight, I think they probably would have caught up anyway, because I think it was a four-flight thing from Guilin. I don't think it was direct from Guangzhou. I think we saw on the screen that it was actually four, even though Grant's voiceover only said it was uh, via Guangzhou. Paul and Steve then eventually leave in second, and they try and work out whether they should walk or get a taxi, and surely the route marker won't be too far away. Mm. And if you know anything about Amazing Race editing, you know if you say that to the camera, the answer will almost certainly be yes. It is too far away. Yeah, just just they're making they're making a lot of mistakes again, and it's all happening right at the right at the end point of the season. Yeah, it was in Paul's defense only one and a half kilometers away. It wasn't a it wasn't a Joseph and Grace situation where they had to walk thirty kilometers. Yeah, but also you do have to you know, be going the right way. <laughs> At least Paul got to stop and rinse his hair with a random drum of water. Did you notice the continuity error with their walking to the detour? No. I don't know. Maybe in my blog I did, but no, not this time. Paul kept changing between wearing a t-shirt and a vest. Really? Sometimes in the space of five seconds. Wow. Maybe he was, Maybe he couldn't make up his mind. <laughs> You'd see him in a vest from the back, and then they'd speak to someone, you'd see him from the front, and he's wearing a t-shirt. That's and then weird. it flips straight back. It does it about four or five times. <laughs> Why would they have to put that out of order? It's just what they thought would be the best way to break up the monotony of how it actually went on TV, where all of the interesting stuff maybe happened in a certain 15 or 20 minute time period during those two hours? I presume so. But also it's hilarious, because they obviously didn't think that I was going to spot it. And I do. Every time. So Shane and Andrew have sat in the background while the other two teams have feuded, and that is just how they like it. And they get their clue in last, but really quickly and make up a lot of time. Mainly, let's be honest, thanks to the fact that the hours of operation cut over three hours off of the uh, three and a half hours that they were behind. Yeah, Michelle and Michelle and Joe were the only team that got on the first fisherman, right? That we saw, yeah. Could you get the clue from the same fisherman then? Because I thought it might turn into like the Cuba leg where Paul and Steve could have just seen where Michelle and Joe got the clue and then go for the same guy. That's what I was thinking, but I don't think they were going to do that. No, I think it was only one clue per fisherman. Oh, th- luckily, they yeah thought that through for this leg. 
yeah, it looked like when they were pulling the clues out of the basket that they were just kind of hidden under a, a layer of fish and uh, there was only one clue in there. Michelle Joe's taxi driver knows the area they need to go to, but not the school itself. And there is a full language barrier even in hotels, which is a very rare thing given what we said earlier in the season. Anywhere in the world. Mm. Yeah, pretty much anywhere in the world. If you go to a hotel concierge, they will at least have a grasp of English. If you're on The Amazing Race, at least. Michelle and Joe then finally get to the kindergarten and pick the quietest girl to help them do learn in the whole entire world. <laughs> so much so that the twins actually have to sit on the front desk to be able to hear her. Neil, they're on their knees and their ears are right next to the girl's mouth. <laughs> and Shane and Andrew have learnt that as soon as they don't think they're going the right way, they just ask someone. And they end up coercing a guy to come along and help them in their taxi. I like how when they drive up to the school, they're just like, okay, she'll drive you back to where you need to go. I hope this didn't waste too much of your day. I hope it was a day off for you. I presume that they sent the driver back with him and then told her to come back to them because they had a taxi waiting. Yes. Oh, they had the same, that's right. They had the same driver. But the implication was that they wouldn't have a taxi waiting because the taxi was going to take the, the bloke back. Mm. Maybe they were long enough at the, maybe th- that was the diabolical plan. Waste time at the teach part of the detour to give the cab driver enough time to get back to the school so Shane and Andrew don't just jump in with the first cab they see. See, it's a master plan from uh, from the dumbass cops. <laughs> uh, Michelle and Joe then struggle with the words for Sheila and bloke. And they try another student who has completely different pronunciations, but end up leaving in first. Yeah, they, they're done before anyone else shows up. And teams must now make their way to Baisha Market and sell 10 kitchen gadgets for no less than 5 yuan each. Once they've sold all 10, they can exchange their profits for their next clip. It's a, it's, it's just all infomercial tools that they're selling. They do it quite well, though, considering they got people to buy things. You know, generally when you're at those shows, you look at the, those things and you think, oh, God, do I really need that? Like, no, I don't. And you walk on. But they were doing quite well. Here's the thing that I mentioned in Beijing's episode, though. Michelle and Joe have an inherent advantage because they are young, female, blonde, and attractive. Yeah. And I don't normally say those things, but it's 100% true in China. If you are blonde, and if you are as blonde as those girls are, you will be noticed by a lot of Chinese locals. Yeah. Especially in an area that didn't look too touristy. They had an inherent advantage with this challenge because... People would have noticed them and gone, oh, what are those funny Westerners doing? Not to mention there would have been cameras, production crew. And that brings them in immediately. Shane and Andrew and Paul and Steve have a little bit more of a difficult time with it. Bang, bang, bang. (laughs) Yeah, the old male teams have to put a little bit more work in attracting Chinese locals than Michelle and Joe do. Yeah, Steve gets the role that Joe has always wanted. Just throw random, random stuff at Paul's head. Make it into a comedy routine, basically. Well, yeah, that's the best way to... I mean, that's what I usually do with... with uh, I, don't, I don't throw things... <laughs> not the throwing things at their head part, but just it's more about the... More about the entertainment and gestures will draw people in a lot more than whatever you're going to say, especially yeah. if they're not really understanding what you are saying. I think we know what one of the... Uh... One of the notes for this episode is going to be Logan talks about how he teaches, <laughs> <laughs> but it but it just it would t- it totally works though with with Chinese culture there. 
when when you when you have such a low percentage of English speakers. Did you also notice that the kids at the detour seemingly were all marked with ribbons on their arms? I saw something to do with the ribbons, but I didn't really take note. Yeah, all the kids who were picked had ribbons on their arms, so presumably those are the ones that the parents had signed the waivers for. Mm. Yeah, you couldn't just Shane and Andrew couldn't just like you know just pull a kid from the monkey bars and say teach us slang. <laughs> <laughs> and they say that they take themselves out of the race a little bit and it is all about the kid however he does clam up when he talks to the teacher poor guy I don't really like details like this because they even though obviously they're not exploitative they do feel a little bit exploitative I didn't feel that it's using other people for the entertainment no because it's a school I don't, I don't feel that it was exploitative but because that's what I deal with that age all the time. That's my life. So I don't, I didn't see that, but yeah, maybe. Shay and Andrew are by far the biggest Aussie slang users on the season. I documented that a lot in my blog that no one uses Aussie slang as much as they do. And I didn't notice it till this time, but when they're describing the kid and his performance, they use random Aussie slang as well as the words that they were trying to teach the kid, and they were just using it casually in conversation. And they said, oh, poor bloke is having trouble with the word bloke. <laughs> My favourite thing about this entire challenge is the editors obviously know that Shane and Andrew love using Aussie slang, so they make them use it so much in this episode compared to normal. Usually you'll get like one or two little rippers or whatever from Shane and Andrew, but they use it in pretty much every confessional in this episode entirely because of this challenge and it it made me laugh so much when i was rewatching it yesterday and the boy hasn't said a word of english other than the slang is being taught and when they think he's ready andrew says to the boy oh you want to go to the teacher and have a go thinking he's not gonna <laughs> understand what have a go means just add that as the 11th word on the list and on the second attempt the poor bloke can only remember good day mate so they decide to switch to learn and Michelle and Joe get their final sale and leave them first and find out that teams must now get a taxi to the airport and then fly to Brisbane, where they will find a marked car containing their next clue, directing them, of course, to a subway restaurant. <laughs> Shane and Andrew then leave alone in second after just one attempt and give their kid a kangaroo keychain to say thank you. I think he was a little tucker. He was a little tucker, yeah. That's the <laughs> that's the one they used. Little tacker. It's supposed to be tacker. Tacker? Tacker, like T-A-C-K-E-R, Tacker. I think they also, at the start of the detour, call him a little ripper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's what they call, called him at the end of it once they succeeded with how well he was teaching. That little Tacker is quite the ripper. <laughs> and when they get to the airport, we do see that Michelle and Joe cannot use an automatic door. <laughs> it was like birds flying into really clear glass. <laughs> they then find a flight leaving via Gangzu, as it has been called in Amazing Race before, at 4.10pm. One other thing, oh yeah, this is another topic to bring up. So, starting with season 12 of the American version, the final egg is always exclusively in one city. This is one of those very rare, not only just two city finales, but two country finales. So and that, the criticism has always been, well, 95% of the time, 
the first two thirds of the episode is a waste because they all get equalized in last flight. So if a team did really well in the first two thirds, it's essentially rendered null and void. So the one thing that's I'm sure people will be bummed out about with Michelle and Joe is that they completely cruised through this whole first two thirds of the finale here. And then it doesn't play to their advantage at all. They may as well just take in a lot more of their time. My argument here is always that the way Amazing Race Australia does it is brilliant because there is always a massive flight between them. So there is the potential for them to carry the advantage over. Maybe not in Amazing Race Australia 3, where they literally booked them the flight from LA to uh, to Australia. But in this one, yes, obviously they are all on the same flight in the end. But because they're doing three connections, there is actually the potential for someone to get ahead if they try and find a different route. Mm. But did they have that option, though? Well, they all spoke to the same woman who booked them all on the same flight. But I think had they been able to do a bit more research or had the time to do more research, maybe Michelle and Joe had the time, but no one else did, they might have found a better flight to Brisbane. Or a different flight to Brisbane, at least. I certainly don't hate the the mid-final leg flight as much as I could, because there is definitely the potential for people to still get ahead. One thing I've noticed over the years is just having the random scavenger hunt and say Nashville or uh, what are some other final destination cities we've had lately? Let's say around New York or LA or Chicago, where it just all feels the, all finale sort of feel the same and don't feel quite as epic. So now people are wanting these two city or two country finales to come back because it feels like a lot more of an epic journey, even if the first half of the leg really means nothing. Yeah, and the other bit of it is obviously it then allows them to do the self-drive bit, but also there are more challenges in the Brisbane half of this leg than there are in the Guilin one. They have to do far more in the second half of this leg than they do in the first. That's right. Yeah, it's not as uneven as other seasons. Because they have, they have four different challenges, I think it is, in the Brisbane half, plus all the self-driving, plus the navigation. In most seasons, that would just be a full leg on its own. Whereas it's only two in the Guaylin half. And arguably that is because they have a longer runtime for the finale, I know, before anyone writes in. I know they have a much longer runtime. I think this episode runs at about an hour and 12, I think it was. I think 68 maybe. minutes. Yeah. Somewhere in that sort of 65, 70 range. They obviously have a lot more time to play with than traditional Amazing Race episodes do, but they use it so brilliantly in this season especially. But also, even if you think back to Amazing Race Australia 1, they do the first half in Singapore. Singapore has so many flight connections to Australia. People definitely can get ahead on that sort of a mid-final leg flight. Mm-hmm. Steve can't remember the word for bathers, and they have to go back to the classroom, and they are the ones who leave learning last. Shane and Andrew sell their slices quickly and leave in second, just as Paul and Steve arrive at the market. Steve says that he realises they won't be able to understand a word that he says, so he just tries to be entertaining, unlike the previous 11 legs. And by the time they get to the airport, Shane and Andrew have 20 minutes to get to the Guangzhou flight and have an escort through the airport. Paul and Steve, almost entirely thanks to Steve, leave the market in last. And much to Michelle and Joe's disappointment, Everyone does catch up, even though Paul and Steve arrive with six minutes to spare. When uh, Steve was screw- screwing up with the word bathers in the detour, I like how he was really, really tempted to drop an F-bomb, but because 
He was in a classroom there. He had to say far out instead. This is an elementary school. Shut your spewing mouth, you animal. He really paused and took his time there. He's like, far out. I have to try this again. My favorite part when the kids were teaching the teams, the thumbs up and the thumbs down bit, like it was the gladiator. (laughs) (laughs) Thumbs down. He cannot pronounce ni hao. Behead him. You guys already know this, but the, the banner is, of course, Shane and Andrew's little ripper of a child doing a thumbs down on them. <laughs> the, the boy is essentially saying, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that obviously Paul and Steve managed to get on the flight with six minutes notice, which is insane. But that's China. Isn't that China for you? They'll let you do stuff like that. Especially if you're leaving the country. They they love you leaving the country. They just <laughs> hate out. you coming into the country, as I said last week. So they are all arriving at 8.55am in Brisbane. And Shane and Andrew essentially win the season by just being sensible at the airport. Because instead of rushing to the cars, they don't rely on the map they've been given. They get a nice, detailed one from the tourist information. That was a really, really smart move. Yep. Mm. And even better, it is a map that lists all the subways in Brisbane, which makes their lives much, much easier when they're trying to find a particular one. The teams must now drive to Captain Burke Park at Kangaroo Point to find their next clue. And they have a lot of trouble with this driving. Like, um, it's you know what's funny is that um, Shane and Andrew, who are cops, did a UE, you know, which is in the middle of this huge road. Like, they probably shouldn't have done that, but I'm like, yes! Like, I will literally do a Yui anywhere I want. I just, I look around to see if there's any cop cars before I do it, but yeah. There are some hilarious quotes from this driving, mainly surrounding people doing Yui's. But, I mean, Michelle and Joe are very much at each other's throats in the second half of this. Like, they obviously had a terrible flight for some reason, and they hate each other's guts on this last day. (laughs) Maybe Paul just waited until the cameras were off and just heckled the crap out of them? It would be fascinating to speak to someone from this season to find out why everyone hated Paul, whether it was just his arrogance or whether he actually did do anything. Or why Joe just blew up at the end. Yeah. I think it's just his arrogance, the way he spoke. But you know what? I don't think he's that cognizant of what he's saying and doing and how it rubs people up the wrong way. He's just saying it. I don't think he's self-aware at all. I also wonder, and I don't know this... I wonder whether Paul is an only child or not. He looks like he would be. Because there is a known thing about only children that they don't necessarily play well with others. I think is the polite way to say it. They're not always the most socially aware. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether Paul does have any brothers or sisters on that note. It's very hard to find out. It was very. I was searching around for him last night on the net. Very hard. Presumably you only found the LinkedIn site that I did. Yeah, very difficult. So when teams get to Captain Burke Park, they find out they have to now drive themselves to Bogo Road Jail, or Bogo if you are Michelle, and find the warden who will give them their next clue. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bogo Road Jail was used in the terrible Netflix mole, was it not? In the second episode? I think it was the jail they had to break from. I wouldn't be surprised... Because I'm pretty sure they started in Brisbane. And I think Alex did say it was Bogo Road Jail. 
Well, at least Greg wasn't around this time. Yeah, I also don't want to then have to go back and watch that season or even acknowledge <laughs> its existence more than I have to. I genuinely can't wait to start recording the Vidim episodes and uh, the live ones this is and just riff on it next week. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be one of them weird things because we've done the historians out of order where you start getting the Netflix mole jokes during the Vidim historians that will come after this. You then get a Netflix mole joke in this episode and then we're going to start the year with me and Bindles just being absolute dickheads about Netflix mole more than likely. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> So Paul and Steve stand over Joe's shoulder to get the directions, while Shane and Andrew have an actual map and don't need it. Paul referred to it as that they were listening in stealth mode. They're not exactly Solid Snake here. <laughs> they were just they were just standing. They weren't crouching. They didn't. They were. They weren't wearing camouflage. There's nothing stealthy about it. They just walked over and stood behind Joe and got all the directions. It is the least stealthy stealth move I think I've ever seen on reality TV. And Joe didn't even notice! This is what I mean going back to Paul's social awareness. He probably thought that was very stealthy, but Paul, it was not. As much as I have defended you so much this season, that was not stealthy, mate. Yeah, how would it be... How would that have been not stealthy? Is if he was banging cymbals as he's walking across to Joe? The only way it could have been any less stealthy is if he was honking a horn at the same time yeah. and just being like, you looked at me! <laughs> Paul is standing behind you! That's how it's not stealthy. It's not as though he built a spy shack behind them and then got into it. <laughs> Behold, the great Paul of China is obtaining directions behind you. <laughs> just, that's all he's doing, he's just walking over and just standing there. And as Michelle said, Shane and Andrew then do a perfectly safe Yui on the bridge, and Joe has to tell Michelle not to go, as you're reversing into a main road. Bugger it. Do it anyway. It's a quarter of a million dollars, Joe. Or Michelle. <laughs> or Paul. Whoever was driving. Michelle was driving. <laughs> Shane and Andrew then arrive first and find out that one team member has to answer questions about the other teams on the race and the second team member must match those answers to get their next clue. This has been seen on so many final legs of Amazing Race. And this was used in the Israel leg of Amazing Race Australia 1. It was. And I really like this challenge because it just causes carnage when teams don't think about it. Whether it be the person doing the initial answers, or the second person that's trying to match them up. Yeah, surely you think about this as a team, not even when you're on the race, before you're on the race, you think about having a system for a challenge like this if it comes up. I certainly would. What's funny is that you think of challenges that would favour all-male teams or co-ed teams or all-female teams, and you think, well, this is purely mental. There's no physical strength required with this challenge, because that's one criticism that Masonry especially had in earlier seasons, is people would say, oh, well, the reason why no female, all-female teams ever win is because of the strength advantage, advantage that all male teams have at a lot of different tasks. Here you have just a Q&A, like no, nothing remotely physical about this challenge, the least physical challenge you could pretty much have on the Masonry 100% mental, and essentially questions are... <laughs> involving a little bit of gossip here, and yet this type of challenge has caused numerous all-female teams to lose over the years. Yeah, and on top of that, 
if you went into this final three knowing that this challenge was going to be a thing, who would you put money on being the worst team at this challenge? It would be Paul and Steve, because they don't know each other at all. Shane and Andrew, as we find out in this challenge, have been co-workers for like 20 years. They must have been co-workers basically as soon as Andrew got out of the academy. Michelle and Joe, obviously, like 24, 25 at this point, they've known each other their entire lives. They should be very good at this challenge. Oh, and they're twins. Yeah, Paul and Steve don't even interact on a daily basis, and they still do better than Michelle and Joe do at this challenge. And Shane and Andrew, I'm sure if you're close at a, working at a police station, I'm sure you know each other a lot better than co-workers at some other jobs out there. Yeah. Mm. You would, at least I would, put money on Paul and Steve being the worst by far at this challenge, and yet they are not. Not by a long stretch. Especially when they have such different personalities. Paul said that himself. He said, Steve and I probably don't share a similar perspective on the other teams at all. So a challenge like this is likely going to be the type of challenge that would put us in dead last. And yes, it doesn't. And yet it doesn't, yeah. And it plays out very similarly to how it played out in Masonry's Australia 1. So the questions are which team you would help, which team you would lie to, which team work best together which team were the unluckiest, and which team's relationship do you envy? Keyword being envy there. Andrew says that he would help Michelle and Joe, light upon Steve, Sticky and Sam were the ones who work best together, Adam and Dane were the unluckiest, and he envies Sticky and Sam's relationship, and then he changes the work best together to himself and Shane. Shane says that people say that he and Andrew are very alike, they are like twins or brothers, unless you're a reality fan forum who thought that they were father and son. <laughs> and it is established, presumably to stop people loopholing it like I would, mm-hmm. that you cannot use yourself as the answer more than once. See, I don't think I would be even that obvious. I would do something like, if you got five questions, do the first team alphabetically first, the second team alphabetically second, or something like that, or even just the order you have them in front of you. I'm not stupid. I'd, I'd come up with a system like that. But the envy question... I think that's the hardest one because you think of, everyone sort of thinks of envy differently. The problem is, Michelle, you're thinking of it as actually answering the question. I'm thinking of it as trying to win the Amazing Race. Well, I know that. I know that. But you can't do what you you want to do because you don't know how many questions there's going to be. You don't know what the questions are. I mean, I know you can do it to a certain extent. You don't need to know the questions. But I think it can go pear-shaped with your idea. I'm talking about before the season going, if if there is a yeah. how well do you know each other challenge and it's about the other teams, just going, right, whichever one's at the top or on top of the pile, you put that in number one. Whichever one's second, you put that number two and ignore the questions completely. Mm. And then just, you know, argue with the producers going, you've got to actually play this seriously. No, I don't. I abide by the rules. You make this challenge, I loophole it. This is how it works. This isn't Amazing Race Australia 6. Production just can't come up with new rules in the middle of the leg. (laughs) Paul says that Lucy and Amelia would help them. Michelle and Joe would lie to them. And Lucy and Amelia work best together. Steve says that they are complete opposites. So it's tough for them to do this challenge. Joe says that Shane and Andrew would help them. Joseph and Grace would lie to them. And she reads the questions far too quickly and doesn't actually understand them. And then we get the real fun. (laughs) <laughs> because lightning hits the jerry can and Shane realises that he and Andrew work best together and they are the ones who leave him first. Teams then have to drive themselves to Archfield Airport and check into one of three charter aircrafts, flying them to Fraser Island, where they will need to drive to Lake Mackenzie. 
However, in doing so, he leaves the other two teams together. <laughs> and given how much everyone apparently hated Paul during the season, maybe not certain people who hated Grace more, Jo then slightly loses her temper at him. As, uh, what, what did she think was going to happen, just grilling Paul like this? He's uh, he's standing right there. He can hear you. Uh, also equally unstealthy. For the second time this season, she describes him as her favourite friend on the entire season, which is one of my favourite phrases. But she then starts, and I'm using Paul's phrase here, ventilating at him. I've, oh my god, <laughs> ventilating. <laughs> it's venting Paul. But yeah, she just starts being really frustrated because it's obviously very hot in her cell and producers being producers thought this will be very entertaining to put them in, in a cell next door to each other. Paul says she's ventilating about how much she hates him. He tells her to have a sucky la-la then and actually says in his wonderful voice, the final time I'm going to do it this season probably, you're taking it out on me! And he has the exact same intonation as he did with the whole Vought debacle. And he then gets the episode title of I'm sorry, my facial expressions offend you. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's just standing there in the cell. He's just, just waiting for Steve to finish. And then it just comes so far out of left field for Joe to pick that exact moment to say, oh, Paul really sucks. He's, 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 he's the worst. Uh, uh, you know, he took, my, he took my lunch money when I was younger. Uh, he's the reason why I have this pimple. And uh, he's the reason why Veronica Mars was canceled after three seasons. Paul is just such a destructive person. Oh, he's just, he's his arrogance. He has no integrity. He lies to everybody. He doesn't smile. He never laughs at any of my jokes. He never sent me a Valentine's Day card over the past five years, even though we didn't meet till three weeks ago. Ugh, can't stand this Paul. It's so funny how much Michelle and Joe hate him, because they come off so badly in this episode for the hatred of Paul. I love how she says she's living the dream next to Paul. <laughs> I envy him so much. And the absolute best thing is that when Paul and Steve leave in second, Paul actually shouts, all the best, Joe. <laughs> yeah, all the best, Joe. Finish strong. I don't, I don't think he's doing it to piss her off deliberately. I think he's just doing it being perfectly sincere. However, of course, off the back of that whole scene, it comes off super insincere. He's probably thinking, well, he said in the car to Steve that I, I think he believed that Joe was having a, an actual mental breakdown because he, he told Steve, yeah, Joe just completely lost it in there on me. And I was just I was just looking at the wall. I was looking at the Paul. I was looking at the Paul on the wall. And to compound the misery for them further, we then get the scene of her own twin sister going, oh yeah, Joe doesn't realise what the word envy means, does she? <laughs> yeah. She's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, doesn't. Yeah, that's the immediate follow-up. Because then, Mich then Michelle just says, oh, she doesn't understand what the word envy means. I just lost $250,000. And throws the chalkboard down. And they leave in last and get a taxi to lead them to Archfield Airport. I had a question about that, first of all. You know when they're doing the they're looking at the five questions on the the sheet. Why was the sheet folded at some point? The sheet has been unfolded and put down on the table. Now this this is a weird thing to pick up, but why was it folded? Like why wasn't the sheet flat and 
pristine. Like it, it really bothered me. Every time we looked at the questions again, I'm like, why there's folds there? Like it's weird. Yeah, I don't know. And then uh, I think in the, while they're driving, Michelle says, I can't believe you didn't know what the word envy means, Joe. You know, we... We we lost we lost because of you, and then Joe says, "Yes, everything is my fault. We lost two hundred fifty thousand dollars because of me." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, you and Michelle lost two hundred fifty thousand dollars squarely because of you and not understanding the word envy." Yeah, yeah, that's there's there are no other factors as to why you lost two hundred fifty thousand dollars because I mean nothing that happened in China impacted how fast you get to the finish line here since everyone was on the same flight, so. Yeah, this was the deciding factor. You done fucked it up. <laughs> and to add to Michelle's pretty poo-poo day, both her and Shane struggle with air sickness on the flight. And then on top of that, she realises that it's a four-wheel drive manual car when they land. Still better than a Cuban car. Better than a Cuban car? Didn't realise how far it was to Lake Mackenzie from there, because it's about 25 kilometres that they had to drive. It did look like it was just around the corner, but it was very much not. Once they arrive at Lake McKenzie, they find out it's the final roadblock of the race, which is who has total recall. I think Michael McKay's an Arnold fan. Hmm. This roadblock, one team member must wade out into the lake and answer five questions in five different clue boxes using coloured rings. Once they have answered all five questions correctly, they will receive their next clue from a ranger. And it is Andrew, Paul and Michelle doing this roadblock. This was copied from the Masoners Asia 4 finale in Singapore. It was, but it was not done in a swimming pool this time. Bit more of a scenic location. Going back to something that I mentioned earlier in the season, did you notice what Paul was wearing in this roadblock? Yeah, I definitely did this time. <laughs> it's probably the most blatant appearance of Paul's neon-coloured Wild Wadi Rashi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah... He wears it so much during the season, usually as a base layer of some description, but he does wear it for this water challenge. Okay, I have a question. So there's five questions they have to answer, but there's seven clue boxes. So do you think two of them just didn't have anything in it? No, I think they probably had two other questions that we just didn't see. Probably about something that was removed from the season. Right. It's also worth pointing out that the questions were not in the same order in the clue boxes. Yeah, I know. I, I worked that out. But I'm just wondering if um, Grant, when when he was explaining it, was he to camera when he said there was five questions? Or do you think they, I can't remember. Because if they have to change it from seven to five, they obviously can't have him on the camera. And did you notice the continuity issues with the rings? And Joe, was it Joe or Michelle who did it? <laughs> it was Michelle. Michelle, like she'd, she'd do one. Like she'd do the first one at one point and then she'd come around and she'd be doing the fourth and the first ring was gone. I'm like, okay, they've done that all out of order. Something else I did realise earlier when I was thinking about us doing the last episode of this season today, we had quite a few next time previews that weren't next time previews because of the weird scheduling. So the episode three one had a on a brand new night or whatever it was. And that wasn't a Grant Bowler voiceover. So he still probably would have had to record next time trailers for all of those. So mm. he would have been doing loads of like the ADR and stuff for this roadblock. And by that point, they would have edited it and gone, yeah, Grant, we need you to take five rather than seven on this one. Uh, so Shane and Andrew specifically left the uh, 
left the last roadblock for Andrew, thinking that it would be a mental one, and they are correct. The questions that we see are the name of the Cuban nightclub, the name of the Parisian cooking school, the name of a Turkish bath, which mode of transport out of canoe, jeepney, or rickshaw they didn't take during the season, and the name of the Jaipur forts where the pit stop was. Now, peeking behind the curtain a little bit, we have recapped this season over about four or five weeks, roughly, from start to finish, because of Logan having the Amazing Race 34 break. And I remembered all five answers to these questions really quickly. I didn't remember the one that Paul couldn't remember. Yeah, I know we've been doing these fairly rapid fire, but I remember saying Naharaga Force a few times. I would have known for sure it wasn't Red Fort, because I know that's in Delhi, and I've been there before. Yeah, I think I would have done all right at this roadblock, just as a viewer. But obviously they've seen far more than I have at this point. Uh, the good old hummus Turkish bath. <laughs> See, that's the thing. Paul knew that hummus was the joke answer there, and he still did it. Yeah, I can't believe that. I can't believe... Again, Paul just making... Well, Paul and Steve and Michelle and Joe both made a surprising number of mistakes here in Brisbane. Yeah, he still picks the joke answer like he's a contestant on the chase looking for Bradley Walsh's approval. I mean, obviously I love Shane and Andrew, but I think this episode is more the story of how the other two teams lost it than Shane and Andrew won it, because mm. Shane and Andrew don't really do anything wrong in Brisbane. Yeah, they don't make any mistakes. Like, Paul and Steve followed Michelle and Joe. Both teams were driving the wrong way for a bit. Michelle and Joe, well, Joe didn't understand the word envy, so that really sucked for them. And then we have Paul messing up this roadblock, so he puts himself too far behind to even make enough time to just get to the treasure chest first by pure luck. Yeah, it's super interesting to see how the two most dominant teams of the season kind of collapse in this last half of the leg. Because by far and away, they are the most dominant teams of the season, those two. I am surprised that Paul screwed up this quiz. Because they, they could have made this quiz much, much harder. I mean, they only they didn't even do A, B, C, or D like Millionaire. This was just A, B, or C. And especially the Turkish bath question when it was A, B, or C, and C was hummus. This is one of the more easy final memory challenges, in my opinion. The other thing that was that would make it different a bit from the Masonry Seisha 4 one is the fact that the clue boxes and going back to the judge was a lot further of a distance compared to the Singapore pool. And why was Michelle only picking up one ring at a time at the beginning? I would have carried as many as I possibly would have. I would have carried like seven of them if I could have. You would have done what Paul did and just grab as many of the rings as he physically could and just float them next to him. Yeah, but you know what? I was thinking when I was watching it, I would have actually put them on me like they were hula hoops because you can carry a lot more that way. Oh, I would have loved to see that visual. <laughs> Just Easy. you kind of waddling out into the um, Well, yeah, no, because they're light and then you there. swim underneath them. <laughs> Look, I'm all for doing things with efficiency. So am I. I don't disagree with you in the slightest. It's just the the mental <laughs> image of you kind of waddling out to the clue boxes with 12 rings around you, just being like, oh, for God's sake, the C ring's right at the bottom. How am I going to get this out? No, you... <laughs> out of them because they're going to be floating you won't be able to see if you don't get out of them <laughs> so paul identifies the fault wrong but andrew doesn't and he leaves in first defeating paul at a mental challenge 
teams must now travel by foot to the end of the beach and dig until they find a chest containing 250,000 didgeridolaroos. They then need to carry their chest to the other side of the lake, which is the finish line for this season of Amazing Race Australia. The first team to bring their chest to the finish line will unlock the chest, thanks to Grant, and take it all home. This was used also as the in the finale for Amazing Race Asia 3. Do you think the key of Zanzibar is what unlocked that chest? <laughs> there we go. I was waiting for Pirate Master reference. <laughs> Have I ever told you about the weird scheduling of Pirate Master in the UK? It's one of the only American reality TV shows that has actually aired in the UK of its ilk. Well, it was bizarre in the States because the last few episodes were CBS.com exclusive, so I only got to watch it. And this was before VPNs were popularized, so I only got to watch it at my aunt's house in Washington State to watch the last couple. I just happened to, well, I just happened to be staying there in the States when the episodes were uploaded onto CBS.com to watch the last two or three of the season. So it was broadcast on satellite in the UK because only two seasons of Amazing Race, for example, have ever been aired in the UK, both on a satellite channel that is essentially the equivalent of GSM. Okay. And it wasn't aired on that. It was aired on kind of their main channel, Sky One, but it was aired at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. Oh, like what what they would do with Endurance on uh, NBC Discovery. Yeah, it was so weird, the scheduling of this show. And it's the only way I was able to watch Pirate Master was getting up at like 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, like a Michelle recording a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kendra from Pirate Master knew who I was when I was in Orlando. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I think she's kept up with a lot of a lot of the reality TV shows. She's kind of never disappeared from the community, I think. Unlike Joe Don, who is, as far as I'm aware, still in a cabin in Alaska with his husky. That's awesome. <laughs> and has been for the past 15 years at this point. So Paul also gets the Turkish bath question wrong, and Michelle gets fired up to beat Paul, and she knows she can beat him at this challenge. She has been writing study notes of every single pit stop, every single challenge, and she knows she can win. Yeah, she just, when she's talking about each question, she's like, oh yeah, you know, Hotel Tropicana, that's when Paul barely beat us to the mat. Oh, that, that fort, that's when uh, Paul did really well at the roadblock, and then we went to the uh, fort afterwards. Yeah, she says that she took notes for every single pit stop and every single challenge. What she actually means is she made a burn book of Paul. <laughs> I don't envy her. What does that mean? (laughs) Does that mean like? Yeah, be fond of. So Paul gets four out of five again and has to head back. And Steve says he's starting to get frustrated and he gets it wrong once again. And Shane and Andrew do something really good here, where Andrew finds some soft sand and realises that it's been dug up recently and is probably where a treasure chest is. And it is, meaning that they find the treasure chest and there's absolutely no tension and they win the season. Yeah, the commercial cliffhanger for the final scene is between Michelle and Joe and Paul and Steve as to who's going to dig up the chest first. It wasn't even the cliffhanger as to whether or not Shane and Andrew would win the race, because that was already treated as a foregone conclusion by that point. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is hilariously little tension in this reveal scene of who wins. Paul is still wrong, and we get the exact same Steve reaction again, and Michelle then leaves in second. Steve says that Paul had always wanted to have the glory of the last challenge, but it has brought him unstuck. He leaves in last, and he doesn't feel that he choked, but gives credit to the other teams for being good at that challenge and besting him. Question. Um, How many times is the final challenge 
just been done by one teammate instead of both of them. It's quite a few times. Because now we're, we're used to seeing it done by both of them. Yeah, that's because Amazing Race is a bit too easy at the moment. I'm just wondering, like, what's the percentage? I haven't got the percentage off the top of my head, but it was a tradition for a long time that the final challenge would be a final roadblock. And it's usually the final memory challenge. That's really tough to have that all on your head. Oh, but it's fun, though, isn't it? Eric Sanchez agrees. Yeah, it's especially mean when you have a final memory challenge literally in view of the finish line, like with season nine. And Paul says that he's flattered by Michelle's hostility, and she gloats that she beat him at his favourite challenge. And he's just like, I don't care. We all did it. We can all be friends at the end of this. Leave me alone. We both, we equally lost. None of us got consolation prizes. Well, I guess Paul and Steve have five consolation prizes, but that's besides the point. And something else I want to bring up is Grant Bowler has the reputation of being a bit emotionless and robotic, especially when you compare him to the new guy. Yeah. But he isn't. Oh my god, at the end, he's like, he's like over the top. He cranks it to a 12. Yeah. (laughs) He has such an unfair reputation of being kind of a stoic host. And I think it's the mole holdover for him, where he's Mm. just like, yeah, I've kind of got to be not emotionless, but a step away from the game. Whereas he really isn't in this season. There's a few moments, like with Ross and Tyrant getting um, eliminated, especially with Lucy and Amelia getting eliminated, and when Shane and Andrew check in first here. He is way more enthusiastic than you remember him being. Yes. And the best thing about it, when he does the Shane and Andrew one, is the fact that he says you blokes have just won the Amazing Race Australia. So they are rubbing off on him. <laughs> and then he crowd surfs into the eliminated contestants from his pure excitement over announcing Shane and Andrew's win. I see him more as a John Montgomery at that point when he was so excited. Like I have a huge I have a huge soft spot for Grant Bowler anyway because of him being great on on Mole Australia. But I really like him in all three of his seasons and he's far better than people remember him being. Mm. If anyone needs a bit of rehab other than Paul in this season it is Grant because he's really really good at hosting. And the problem is he was a bit too expensive for Channel 10 to to get back. So they had to go for the guy they could get for 40 grand. So Steve finds the second chest and Paul tries to encourage the girls. They then check in in second and they say that they were beaten by the best and Paul finally shows some emotion in confessional and says he does his best to be a good person. Yeah, he's crying at the finish line and he's crying in this solo confessional. Yeah, this is what I mean about I think they may have re-edited the finale especially to lay off Paul a bit. Because I don't think we would have seen this confessional from Paul if they hadn't tried to do a bit of character rehabilitation on him at the end. Could be. And I do have a note that just says, did Paul actually do anything villainous? And I think we've covered it in the past hour or so of podcasting about this episode, to be honest. <laughs> no is the answer. He didn't really do anything villainous, despite what Kim and Donna may think. And yes, he was a bit of a buffhead. Yes, he was a bit of a antagonistic presence. But I don't actually think he did anything outwardly villainous to anyone. And then Michelle and Joe envy themselves into a third place finish. You guys still completed the Amazing Race Australia and just like, yeah, but Paul beat us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you missed out on $250,000. Oh, we don't care about that. It's just that Paul beat us. And that's pretty much where the episode ends. We get a nice confession on Shane and Andrew going, yeah, we can, we can treat our families now. We can take our wives to Paris and not have them have to watch this season and go, you went to Paris without me? But I mean, really, the ending of this season is 
yeah, we we beat Paul and Steve, and there's nothing they can do about it. And Paul and Steve are just like, yeah, whatever. We still got to the end. Yeah, I wish that Shay and Andrew were actually got to keep the money. It's too bad it just disappeared on them. I would be interested about the logistics of those treasure chests as well. Because I suspect that not all of that money was real. Just the top part of it? Yeah, yeah they wouldn't bury 750 grand on the beach, I suspect. And presumably there was more than three chests. Could you imagine? I can't find the prize money. <laughs> Some of you will get your paychecks a little bit late that worked on the season. Just hang tight. If you really want your paychecks a bit early, just grab a shovel and have a, <laughs> have a go. Yeah, I reckon probably the top layer of the cash was real. Yeah. Maybe even the top note in each bundle, because I think I think it was $50 notes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was. Shane and Andrew will never know, though. No, the chess combined probably contained maybe a couple of thousand dollars at most. And then maybe there's just actual like bricks at the bottom of it. But yeah, it's too bad what happened with the money, because I guess, uh, what was that, Sue and Teresa just had that aura spray, so when the chest opened up, they quickly sprayed the aura spray into the treasure chest, and then the money just, just disappeared. <laughs> and now they have a retreat in India, and I don't know where that cash came from. Yeah, they're somewhere in the Himalayas, I think. Yeah. She she replied as well yesterday. Oh, did she? Excellent. She's going to enjoy the first three episodes. <laughs> Me constantly taking the piss out of the Aura Spray. And that is the end of this season. Woo-hoo. We did it! We did it! Oh Go God. team! After a year of talking about doing this season, it is finally in the books. And on my December 31st. Yep. It is a New Year miracle. New Year's Eve miracle. Yeah. <laughs> or in our case, New Year's Eve Eve. 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 <laughs> And I think I can speak for both of you when I say that this season holds up on a rewatch so well. Yes. This is such a good season. Especially when you compare it to the last three Australian seasons of Amazing Race. Or Amazing Race in general. (laughs) What happened? As much as obviously I wanted to spend the last 12 episodes taking the piss out of new Amazing Race Australia and annoying Michelle with that, given that Bo Ryan will never actually be able to listen to anything... And would never hear about it. I mean, this season just... It blows all of the Amazing Race Australia reboot seasons out of the water without a question. It blows all of the rest of Amazing Race Australia out of the water without a question. And for me, it blows pretty much every Amazing Race season out of the water. Even though it's only 10, 11 years old. It is a really classic, awesome season to do. And really classic, awesome season to watch. It's really it's really easy to rewatch this season. Yeah. It helps that the casting is so phenomenal. And I mean, we have eulogized almost everyone in this cast. I think we probably have technically eulogized Paul given the last like hour and a bit. Yeah. And probably Shane and Andrew and Michelle and Joe, to be fair. But everyone, apart from Adam and Dane, is great in this cast in their roles that they were obviously cast. Even Grace, who obviously I don't particularly like. She serves a purpose, and she drives that narrative forward so well. And it's a fascinating season for me because of how much was cut from it. There's so much missing from this season that we know about, and so much that we probably still don't 11 years later. Crazy thing, too, is that it's not even the absolute best route we've seen in Amazing Race, because we don't get any Africa legs or any South America legs. 
No, and you have to bear in mind, the season that followed two years after this in Amazing Race Australia features my favourite screen cap, maybe in TV history, of Grant Bowler stroking the cheetah that didn't even air in Australia. And also the ridiculousness of Amazing Race Australia 3. And it still doesn't hold a candle to this season for me. It's nuts. You finally got to do it. Yeah, Amazing Race Australia 3, at least, you know, they try to make up for this season's route with going to all six inhabited continents, if I'm not mistaken. Albeit, it's slightly technical because they go to LA for half a leg to do North America. Yeah, that's all they really needed to do. There is one challenge in LA, which is eat a hot dog. Just to say that they went to North America. But it's so fascinating a season to watch this one. For me. Yeah. I enjoyed doing it. It was good. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad I strong-armed you both into doing it rather than another American season. Yeah, season 12, or season 5, or season 7, or season 9. We'll have to wait for another time. Oh my god, everyone's everyone's talking about season 5 at the moment. Like, Because it was oh. on Netflix. Is that why? Yeah, 5 and 7 were on Netflix. Right. Of course they were. That's why. Have you guys got anything else you want to say about this glorious season, or this wonderful cast, and also Adam and Dane? No. Adam and Dane. <laughs> you just had him on the end. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I hear they were the unluckiest team, because they sold their shoes. Can you tell that I finished editing episode two this afternoon? And I'm just, like, chock full of Adam and Dane jokes. <laughs> yeah, I, that's all I paid attention to at the finish line. I was just like, oh, dear God, it's Adam and Dane, the unluckiest team who sold their shoes. One final thing I do actually want to mention is something that is very sneaky that made me laugh, is everyone at the finish line is dressed exactly the same way as their promo pictures. Yes! I saw that too. Oh, that's a good detail. You have like Kim and Donna in the bowling shirt and her red top that they also appear in the convertible in. You have Lucy and Amelia in their green t-shirts. You have Adam and Dane in their promo t-shirts. I suspect they were probably told they had to wear their title sequence stuff. But it really made me laugh because I forgot they did it. Yeah. And on that bombshell, I suppose, thank you for listening to our Amazing Race Australia recaps all season long. We'll be back very soon for more Historians episodes. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at Logsabquacky. Michelle is better. 3 I'm MJ Harmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. And one final thing I'd like to note before I say goodbye is that probably the next time that you hear us three together, along with Anthony, will be episode 500. (gasps) See you soon. Bye. (laughs) Peace out and just chill till the next episode. Caveat, assuming I keep the scheduling the same.